Open your Bible to Nehemiah 8. I told the pastor when I came in today that I could have, I named it, bring the book, but I could have named it Smokey and the Bandit because we have a long way to go and a short time to get there. So we want to get right into it. Now in Nehemiah 8, God used the Babylonians to sack and destroy and nearly depopulate Jerusalem there in 2 Kings chapter 25 because Judah had persisted in her unfaithfulness to the covenant. God chastened his people with 70 years of captivity in Babylon. We see that in Jeremiah 25:11. Nehemiah stands in close relation to the book of Ezra, tracing God's act behind the rebuilding of Jerusalem as spiritual reforms. Nehemiah received reports of the remnant of exiles who had returned to Jerusalem there in Nehemiah 1-2. And uh, he heard of the affliction and the reproach they were suffering because of the broken down walls of Jerusalem. And then Nehemiah was struck to the heart and prayed that God would provide a way to rebuild the walls and so take away the reproach of his covenantal people. As the king's cupbearer, Nehemiah was given a providential opening to ask for permission to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And once in Jerusalem, Nehemiah made a night journey to survey the situation. In Nehemiah chapters 3 through 7, recount the efforts of the Jews in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem despite the external opposition and the internal strife that they went through. The second part of the book narrates the consecration to the Lord of the people along with the city there in chapters 8 through 12 and some continued reforms that proved necessary in chapter 13. And despite despite being known mostly as the builder of the wall, Nehemiah realized that Judah's biggest need was not physical walls, but spiritual dedication to God, a zeal for God's house, a zeal for God's name, and motivated Nehemiah to do what he did. He pointed forward to the greater rebuilder who would come and save his people from their sin and deliver them from their spiritual bondage and exile once and for all. Now, some theologians would say that they believe that there'll never be an experience of another biblical revival. I want us to look at an awakening that takes place in Scripture, One that is not conceived by man or conjured up by a committee, but an awakening that has come down out of heaven and has impacted the people of God. I first got the initiative to do this, uh, study this uh, wholeheartedly when I heard Jeff say in a men in motion, uh, just talking, he said, you know, our country needs awakening. And I thought, how true that is. And uh, it is the awakening here in Scripture that took place under the preaching of Ezra in the days of Nehemiah as they gathered at the water gate. And throughout redemptive history, every great awakening has always been accompanied by deep conviction of sin. In these mighty movements of God, the Word of God is proclaimed, the hearts are cut to the core, and souls are laid bare before God. Sin that has long been suppressed is now suddenly exposed and consciences are smitten and guilt escalates and deep sorrow over sin comes. Conviction of sin becomes intolerable and laughter is turned into weeping and joy is turned into gloom. 
and heaviness of heart settles upon the people like a thick fog. And in that heart-rending experience in the day of God's visitation, sin is confessed and repentance runs deep and Jesus is embraced and the soul is cleansed and forgiveness of God is received. In every awakening, it is a painful experience. There is no soft or easy awakening because an awakening brings with it an awakening to the holiness of God and an awakening to the unholiness of the individual. Sin that has long been tolerated, sin that has long been excused and ignored, sin that has long been minimized and suppressed, sin that has long been hidden and denied is now suddenly brought to the surface and there is weeping and there is grief under the realization that my sin has been a violation of the holiness of God. And this is precisely what transpired in this revival. This awakening at the Watergate and those who heard the word of the Lord were pierced to the depths of their soul and they were cut to the core as there was a new awareness of their sin, of their own sin, and they cry out to God for relief. Just like David's pleading prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, when Nathan uh, the prophet confronted him of his sin, David realized what every believer seeking forgiveness must realize. Even though he had tragically wronged Bathsheba in an adulterous affair of impregnating her along with his premeditated murder of her husband Uriah in attempting to cover up his sin, David's ultimate crime was against God and God's holy law. And may I just say that it was the goodness of God that led David to repentance of his sin. So what we see in our Nehemiah 8 passage is a prototype of every awakening. And every genuine heaven-sent revival and the weeping will turn into joy, but it begins with deep conviction of sin. So as we examine our text, the first thing I want you to note there in verse 1 is the cry for God's word. We see in Nehemiah 8.1, Now all the people gathered together as, as one man. Now I have to stop right there because we know that there was approximately... 40,000 people gathered here, give or take 10,000, somewhere in that neighborhood. It was an enormous assembly of people, and they gathered as one man, the Bible says, meaning they were there for one purpose, in one accord. They were there in one place with one mind. In verse 1, now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So as this enormous assembly of people gathered as one man in one accord, with one purpose, with one thing in mind, they gathered in the square that was in front of the water gate on the east side of Jerusalem at the time it was the first day of the seventh month, which was the equivalent of the beginning of a new year on the Jewish calendar. It was as if they were all saying, we want to start the new year out right with God. We want the word of God brought to us. And this was a time in which they were to celebrate the Feast of Trumpets. They were to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was a time for the public ministry of the word of God to be read to the people. 
So these multiplied thousands of people making our congregation look like a small group Bible study. And so they are all gathered there and they cried out for Ezra the scribe to bring the book, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. He had given them this. So the people understood that one man in this nation who knew the word of God better than anyone else was Ezra. And 14 years earlier, Ezra had returned to the promised land for Babylon, from Babylonian captivity in the second return. There in Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra devoted himself to the law of the Lord. He set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to live God's word and to teach the word of God in Israel. So for 14 years, Ezra has been digging deeper and deeper into the word of God. And so now on this occasion, they call for Ezra and they cry out with one voice, bring the book, bring the book. Can you imagine 40,000 plus or take a few uh, people all at once screaming, Bring the book! Bring the book! How could a preacher not preach that's been called of God to preach? And this is what is so desperately needed in churches today. A spiritual hunger in the pew to cry out to the pastor, Bring us the Bible! Bring us the Word of God! Bring us the book! People need to be crying out, Pastor, would you stop chasing rabbits? Bring us the book in context! Pastor, would you give us less jokes and give us more Bible? Pastor, could we hear less about the budget and the building program from the pulpit? Could we have more Bible? Pastor, could we have fewer stories about your children, about your golf game, and even about you? Because Jesus Christ must increase and we must decrease. Give us the book. Pastor, please stop tickling itching ears. Give us the book. Pastor, would you please fire the interpretive dance team? Give us the Bible. Pastor, bring the book. This is exactly what we need. Now, don't look at me like you want a piece of me. I have nothing against interpretive dance teams. But if it overrides the preaching of God's Word, i got a problem with that. We are thankful to God for sending us pastors who spend countless hours with the Lord in prayer and study to exposit the Scriptures. Pastors who bring the book. But the majority of churches today read a verse or two, then spend 40 minutes in story time. Never expounding on the verses read. If we're to have a revival like we see in Nehemiah 8, it's going to be incumbent upon every born-again, repentant believer in Christ Jesus to cry out to their pastors, bring us the book. Bring us the Bible. That's where this begins. This is a preacher's dream come true. He'll be pinching himself at night. The cry for God's Word. The second thing I want you to see is the confrontation with God's Word. Beginning in verse 2, in response to the demand to bring the book, Ezra now steps forward to meet their request. And he did not disappoint them in the least, but delivered to them a masterful presentation of the Word of God. Nehemiah verse eight or verse 2 
in, in chapter 8. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Ezra has prepared his whole life for this one moment. And God has prepared the man for the moment, and God has prepared the moment for the man. And for the 14 years, Ezra has been with scrolls of Scripture unraveled before him, studying the Word, digging into the text, grasping its meaning, capturing its thunder, incorporating it into his soul, applying it to his own life, practicing it in his own walk, teaching it faithfully all these years. Now is the time as he steps in front of the entire nation and as they gather together on this moment, as they're crying out for the word of God. Verse 3, Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. Now I just want to say something. In the biblical days, morning, the time clock went like this. Morning started at day, uh, sunrise, which was 6 a.m., Three hours later, 9 a.m. Three hours later, six hours later, noon. Then it went to 3, and then it went to 6 p.m. From 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., there was no time. They didn't keep time in the dark. They did it by the sun. And so when it says morning until midday, it could have very well possibly been a six-hour preaching of the Word of God before the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. He read from it, and as he read from it, please do not think that this was some monotone, boring reading of Scripture. I love the way people read Scripture in our church. When they read Scripture here, it's like they're preaching the Word while they're reading it. And that's exactly what's going on here. It goes, uh, monotone reading of Scripture is almost like, I just have to do it in most churches where the Scripture is read, where the bland is leading the bland. And this word, read, in the Hebrew is the word Korah, which means to cry out, to call out, to roar, to roar like a lion, to herald, to proclaim it's the very word that is used in Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, when Jonah cried out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And so as Ezra is reading the word of God, he is very impassioned as he reads the word from early morning until midday. It was an adult portion of Scripture. And what Ezra is doing here is putting his heart and his soul into the reading of the word of God. He is literally preaching the word as he's reading the word. He is emphatic. And now the response in verse 3. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. The word attentive here in the Hebrew means the turning of the ear. Uh, the older I've gotten, my wife can tell you. She'll say something and I go like this. What? What? That's what that means. The turning of the of the ear, they all leaned forward and they turned their ear towards Ezra so that they could drink in the word of God. And when the preacher takes the word of God seriously, it escalates in the people to take the word of God seriously. No entertainment was needed on this day to hold the attention of the people. Some people say to me, well, today people have such a short attention span. You can only preach tiny little sermonettes to hold their attention. I say they didn't have an attention uh, problem on Saturday when they went out and played four hours of golf and then they spent two hours in the clubhouse either bragging or lying about their golf game. 
They didn't have a problem on Saturday watching six hours of UFC, Ultimate Fighting Championship. And they didn't have a problem at the football game when they went early for tailgating. They stayed late for overtime. They stormed the field when it was over. Afterwards, they went to the concert. And now you want me to believe that suddenly they have an attention problem. No, they have a heart problem. Well, the thousands of people in our text, their hearts were hungry. And they're attentive to take in the word of God. Verse 4, so Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood. Now, R.C. Sproul and his comedic personality, uh, when that was, that's in the word of God, R.C. Sproul said, notice, Ezra preached from a wooden pulpit, not a plexiglass pulpit, as a joke. But anyway, we see here, Ezra the scribe stood on the platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose. That was so that he could be seen and so he could be heard and to project his voice. Ezra is surrounded by these 13 spiritual leaders. Six on the right side of him, seven on the left side of him. This is a statement, church, of solidarity. It's like saying we are standing with the preacher. And please note that these elders are not seated on the back pew of the church. I call that the the back pew where the pastor sits and where I sit. I call it the shoe store row because it's where all the loafers and sneakers sit. They are all together. All these people are all together in the front with in front of the people depicting to the nation We stand with the message that is being brought as they are like bookends around Ezra. And then in verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. He didn't say, would everybody please stand? They just stood up. They instinctively rose to their feet in order to express reverence and awe for the Word of God. Because they realized that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And that this is coming down from God above as the Word of God is being read to them and to us. I always tell people, do you want to hear God speak to you? Read your Bible. Do you want to hear God speak audibly? Read it out loud. There in verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Ezra's reading of the word of God was in reality a coronation service as he is blessing the name of God, magnifying the God of the word as he is reading it and as he is explaining it. I like what John Piper said, quote, We are to be exaltational expositors, always exalting the greatness of our God. Unquote. There in verse 6, then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And this was symbolic. They lifted their hands, realizing this message is not coming from Ezra. This message is coming from God. Concerning the book of the law, Moses is only the secondary author. The primary author is the God of heaven and earth. And nothing has changed today, church. Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 says, Man shall not live by bread alone, 
but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus quoted that very verse in Matthew 4, 4, when he was being uh, tempted by Satan. And so their hands are lifted up, and they're receiving this message down from God. And verse 6, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. How low did they go? How low did they bow? Their faces were in the dirt, church, and they worshiped the Lord there. It was this high theology that was driving this, uh, driving this high doxology, and the deeper Ezra went into the Word of God, the higher they were rising up to worship the living God. It's what James Montgomery Boyce called the teeter-totter effect. Like children on a playground, two children get on a seesaw, a teeter-totter. Uh, and then getting on that teeter-totter, one end is up and the other is down. Both ends can never be up at the same time. It's one or the other. And Boyce said, quote, As God is exalted, man is humbled. But when man is exalted, it's as if though God is dethroned. James chapter 4, verse 6 says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So here, Ezra is blessing uh, the greatness of God and lifting up the name of God. It was a magnification of God, and as the higher he lifted God, the lower the people were brought down in humility and in submission, in humility to the point that their faces were on the ground God is doing something here in their midst. No one is tapping their watch. No one is looking around. People are spellbound. It is a moment in time, and they are responding to the word of God. Then we see in verse 7, there down near the end, the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. I want you to grasp this. The Levites, who were scattered, went out and scattered among the people, remained in their place. Ezra read from early morning to midday, and the Levites were explaining the law of God to the people while they stayed in the crowd. And he read that Bible that day, or the word that day. The book was lengthy, and there may have been frequent pauses for explanation of the text. So all along with the reading of the Word of God is the explaining or the interpretation of the Word of God, and surely with application. But how important it is to explain the text by keeping it in context. I bought a keychain at the Ligonier Conference this year. That keychain says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Boy, how many people do that? John MacArthur said, quote, The meaning of the text is the text. And until you have the meaning of the text, all you have is black print on white paper. So the word has to be rightly divided. The word has to be explained and expounded. And that is what is taking place here. In fact, if we had time, we could go through these verses and I could draw your attention to the mind. Their minds are being renewed by the truth of the Word of God. The mind of Christ is being shaped within them as the Scripture is being read and explained to them there in Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then in verse 8, So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. They read from the book from the law of God, and they gave the sense. That word sense is parash in the, in the Hebrew. Parash means literally to separate uh, to break down the text so people understand it, to make sense, if you will, of the text, it make, to make distinctions in the text of Scripture. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, meaning to rightly handle the word of truth, rightly handle the word of God. And the Apostle Paul, as a tent maker, would take a pattern and he would lay it over animal skin and carefully cut around that pattern as he, pattern as he cut that animal skin so he had a piece of leather uh, that he could sew perfectly to another piece of leather to complete the task at hand in tent making. Uh, to know how to rightly handle the Word of God is to cut it straight with Scripture. Always keeping God's word in context, knowing that Scripture defends Scripture. That's the idea here in our text. In verse 8, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Again, it means to make clear. Uh, clarity can never be overacted, uh, over, overrated, or in preaching. Uh, now the word also means to make plain. Uh, to, it means to make distinct, to explain, to interpret it. So I want you to get the picture here. Just using that word alone, what that's telling us is this. So they're not just hydroplaning over the text. They're not just skimming over the surface. They're not just reading a text and moving on and reading another text and moving on and reading another text. They're not doing that. They come to the text and they're giving the author's intent the author's meaning and the proper contextual interpretation of this text of Scripture. What God means by what God says. And that is at the heart. That is the engine that drives true expository preaching. So every awakening has always been ushered in by this kind of bold biblical preaching. You look at the Reformation with Luther and Calvin and the rest. They were God-called preachers. Then you look what happened in the Golden Puritan Age. They had God-called preachers. Then what happened in the Great Awakening? You had Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. They were lit up. They were preachers on fire for the Word. That's what happened in the Victorian age with Charles Spurgeon and J.C. Rowe. These men were heart-penetrating God-called preachers, and that's what must happen again today. Every awakening is ushered in by a new generation of men who will proclaim the Scripture, who will bring the book. And then lastly, I want you to look at this. The conviction from God's word. Look in verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest, and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Revival was breaking out. 40,000 plus people are weeping over their sin before a holy God. They are in the midst of a holy God and they know it. 
and their sin is revealed. Do you know what was happening here? The Word of God, which is like a mirror that allows you to see yourself for who you truly are and for what you truly are. All of these thousands upon thousands of people are now looking into the mirror of the Word of God. And they are seeing their blemishes, and they are seeing their flaws, and they are seeing their sin, and they are actually seeing what God sees in them, and all their secret sin, wicked thoughts, and it's appalling, and they are awakened. It's like they've been asleep. It's like they've been unconscious to their own spiritual state of soul, and now suddenly they've been aroused from a deep sleep, and and they're now awakened, and they look into the mirror of God's Word, God's law, God's holy law. The Bible says in 1 John 3, 4, sin is the transgression of the law, or lawlessness to the the moral law of God. The Ten Commandments, we've all lied, we've all stolen something, we've used God's name in vain, those are all sentenced on the day of judgment of hell for eternity. That's why I say, don't start depicting when you see something bad happen to someone else and get all giddy about it. What you're doing is you're, all get, you're getting giddy about a man that fell into sin and he got caught with it. And all he's done, you're giddy at him and mocking him. He's getting exactly what he deserves is what you're saying. And, and here's the thing. You're that way toward him and the only thing different between him and you is his sin is different than your sin. You're still sinner. And we need to pray for people like that. But I want you to know they came under deep conviction of sin. Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's a good thing, church. You have to, you think about this. If you have a broken ankle, don't you want pain? Because it tells you something is wrong. You need to go have it set right. That pain alerts you that something is wrong. The lack of pain is really a lack of mercy. You would never know something is wrong. The Apostle Paul said this in Romans 7, 7. Paul writes, I would not have known sin except through the law. And so these people's hearts have been pierced by the word of God. And they are weeping uncontrollably. uncontrollably. And in most churches today, the goal is to keep anyone and everyone from ever getting to this state. These churches act like, we just want you to have a good time. The pastor of these churches are more like the captain of the love boat. I'm okay. You're okay. Let's just all have a great time today. But here in our text, the law of God is revealing their sin. And it is shocking and it's startling. It's disturbing to them. And the Levites have to tell the people, you're weeping too much. Do not sorrow there in verse 10. And he says it again the third time in verse 11. Be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. Wouldn't you love to be in a worship service where the pastor had to say, please stop repenting so much of your sin. And when they heard and understood God's law, they understood their violation of it. And that their sin was against God, as all sin is. Not tears of joy, but penitent sorrow, in verse 10. 
came forth as they were grieved by the conviction in verse 11. Over the distressing manifestations of sin and transgressing the Lord's commands, the law, and the consequent punishments they had suffered in their captivity. The event called for a holy day of worship to prepare them for the hard days ahead in Nehemiah 12.43. So they were encouraged to rejoice. The words they had heard did remind them that God punishes sin, but also that God blesses obedience of their true repentance. That was reason to celebrate. They had not been utterly destroyed as a nation in spite of their sin and were, by God's grace, on the brink of a new beginning. And that called for celebration. Church, every genuine heaven-sent revival is brought by the Holy Spirit using the Word of God, which brings repentant weeping that will turn to joy. But it begins with deep conviction of sin from God's Word. There in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And it was a tour de force of the Word of God being brought. Peter brought the book. He starts with, in Acts chapter 2, verse 16, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, keep up with me here. And he preaches by the reading, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, there in Acts 2, 17, 21. And then in verse 21, he says this, he's quoting Joel 2, 32, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then he interprets Scripture with Scripture and tells them who the Lord is. Acts 2, 22, the very next verse, 3 and 24, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, You have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Then in Acts chapter 2, verse the very next verse, 25 through 28, he quotes Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Then he goes to Psalm 132, verse 11 in Acts 2.30. Then he comes back in Acts 2.31 by quoting Psalm 16.10. And then in Acts chapter 2, 34 and 35, he goes to Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, set at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Listen to that, you you get it? Scripture, 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 Scripture. The Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. Then Peter says there in the very next verse, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. You know what happens the very next verse, church? The very next verse, verse 37, the people interrupted Peter's sermon. In verse 37, now when they heard this, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Note that Peter wasn't even finished preaching. They cut the message. They couldn't stand it anymore. Then in verse 38 39, Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, meaning Gentiles, 
as many as the Lord your God will call. He's quoting Joel 2.32 once again. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, he says, And with many other words, the Bible says, with many other words, he went back to his message, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from the perverse, from this perverse generation. And the people could not bear up any longer. With the searchlight of the word of God shining in their souls into the darkness of their unbelief. And so they cry out, what shall we do? And the Bible says their hearts were cut. Cut is a Greek, Greek word, katoniso, katoniso. And it is a word that it was used to describe the priest taking a butcher knife and slaying the sacrificial animal before it was placed on the altar for sacrifice. It was the taking of the sharp butcher's knife and slitting the throat and inflicting the death blow to the sacrificial animal. That's the very word. They were cut to the heart. And may I say to you, these people at Pentecost, they ran to Christ and they found a glad reception But not one of those 3,000 giggled through the narrow gate. Not one of those 3,000 skipped through the narrow gate. They all came weeping under the conviction of their sin. They were cut by the word of God to the very depth of their being. This was not a superficial flesh wound that they would get over by the time they got to the parking lot. No, they were devastated because the word of God had been brought to bear upon them. Their hearts were pierced by truth. And for 3,000 people in that crowd, the Holy Spirit's work of conviction was all part of his work of regeneration in their hearts. So turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Hebrews 4 and verse 12. We just need to pull over and park here for a moment concerning the book. There in verse 12, Hebrews 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This is how sharp and how penetrating the word of God is and how it cuts into the depth of our conscience, our soul, and it reveals the spiritual condition of our soul and our heart to ourselves, and it allows us to see ourselves as God sees us. Looking at Hebrews chapter uh, for, look in verse 12. Let's break it down. Starts out with saying, For the word of God. We know in Deuteronomy 8 3, uh, Jesus quoted in, in Matthew 4 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There in 2 Timothy 3 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, meaning all scripture is God breathed. There in verse 12, For the word of God is living. And this is really where the author puts his emphasis. In the original language in the Greek, when the writer of Hebrews wrote this, the word order is this. Living is then moved to the very beginning of the sentence, and literally this verse reads, Living for the word of God is. And when you want to emphasize a word in the Greek language, you front load that word at the beginning of the sentence to draw your attention. It's like taking a yellow highlighter and just highlighting a particular word. For the word of God is living. Every other book is dead. This book alone has life. This book alone is living. Martin Luther said this, quote, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. Charles Spurgeon said this, quote, This book has wrestled with me. This book has smiled at me. This book has frowned at me. Unquote. 
And the Word of God is a living book. And only a living book can give life. Like produces like. It is the Word of life. Hebrews, there, there in verse 12, the Word of God is living and powerful. This word powerful means it's energetic. It's dynamic. It's always at work. It never takes a day off. It's never on sabbatical. This book is always working around the world. It's very, very active. It's all-powerful. Now look with you in verse 12. For the word of God, living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is razor sharp. It is sharper than any surgeon's scalpel. And that it is a two-edged sword means there's no blunt side to it. It's all edge. It's able to cut deeply. There's not a blunt chapter in the entire Bible. There's not a dull verse in the entirety of Scripture. God's Word is all razor sharp. And it's so razor sharp, the author goes on to say there in verse 12, and piercing. The book penetrates all of our outward facade, all of the excuses that we would put up. It cuts right through the external features of our soul, the calluses, and it pierces, the Bible says, even to the division of soul and spirit. This figurative language, metaphorical language, which is to say it cuts to the depth of your very being. It cuts to the core. It cuts to the bone. It goes all the way to the depth of your soul, to the very epicenter of your life. Every other book just simply is massaging the externals of your life unless it's a book that is full of the Word of God. Now, this book inflicts no mere flesh wound. This book does not administer a mere scratch on the surface of your flesh, uh, the surface of your life. The book cuts all the way to the division of soul and spirit. And that's just a metaphorical way of saying it gets all the way down to the depth of your being. The writer says there in verse 12, For the word of God is living, powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow. And that's another way of saying the same. It's, a, it's another figurative expression, and what it means is it exposes what has long been covered up. It exposes secret thoughts. It exposes selfish ambitions. It exposes egotistical motives. It gets behind the action to the attitude and the motivation that is driving the action. It doesn't deal with just mere behavior or modification, but it gets to what is driving the action. There's only one book that can do this, and it is the Word of God. Now notice what is next in verse 12. And joints and marrow, of joints and marrow, and is. Let me just pause right there for a moment. And is. That's the sufficiency of Scripture. The book is. The book is able to get the job done. The book is entirely capable of cutting to the depth and revealing to you what needs to be restored, what needs to be repaired. This book alone brings revival. This book alone replenishes the soul. But please note this. It is a discerner, the Bible says. This book is able to hold court and to preside over our soul. This book is the authoritative. This book is the measuring rod. This book renders the divine verdict upon our lives. This book has the final say, and it really doesn't matter what man has to say. What matters is what the book has to say. Too many people live today by what their preacher said. I love our pastor. I'm thankful he's one that brings the book. But you know what? Patty and I go home with the message every week. 
and we use it as a Bible study throughout the week. And you know what we found? He's bringing the book. He's bringing the book. Verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the vision of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Think about that. To get into your thought life, your thoughts and your intentions, what no one else can see and what remains concealed on the inside, those thoughts that are in your private life, inner desires, personal ambitions, driving motives, it is only the Word of God that can cut so deep as to reveal yourself to yourself. There's been many times that I've preached in many different places. I've noticed a gentleman standing over in the corner or something as I'm shaking hands after the message, and, and uh, he'll make his way over to me. Or It's happened several times with different churches. And after people have passed through, he'll come up to me and he'll say something like this. You've been talking to my wife? I say, no, sir. You've been talking to my wife. I have not. No one knows, he'll say to me, no one knows about me other than my wife what you just said in your sermon. And that's happened more than a few times because the Word of God rips the mask off the hypocrite and reveals themselves to themselves. There in verse 13, look in Hebrews 4.13, and there is no creature, and that would include you and me, there is no creature hidden from his sight. And the idea here is not only does God see us, but when the sword of the Lord cuts our soul and fillets us and opens this up, now we can see into our heart and we see what God sees. And when he looks deep within us, there is no creature hidden from his sight. And that by implication, nor from our sight, as we're under the knife, under the sword of the Lord. There in verse 13, but all things... Every thought, every intention, every motive, all things are naked and open. Everything is brought out into the open. Skeletons come dancing out of the closet. The word naked and open is a Greek word, gymnos. It's from which we derive the English word gymnasium or gym. And in the first century, gymnasium was a place that a male athlete would go to and he would just strip down in order to go through training and to work out. There could be no restrictions to the movement of his limbs. And applied here in our text, that is saying, it is the word of God that strips us naked, and there are no fig leaves from which we can hide our sin behind. There in verse 13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account, or literally translated, of him whom we must give an answer. It is the scripture that heightens our sense of divine accountability and our human responsibility to our divine accountability to pursue holiness and our human responsibility to confess sin before God and repent of it. There in Acts 20, 21, testifying, declaring to Jews and also to Greeks, that covers everyone. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, there will be no dry-eyed revivals. So in days of awakening, the sword of the Lord is unsheathed and the listener is stripped naked and completely exposed before God and he sees himself as he truly is. His head is pushed up, his neck is laid bare, his throat is slit, his heart is stabbed, his conscience is smitten and his sin is uncovered. And there is weeping over sin. That is why Jesus said in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Joy comes after the repentance. 
And the only one who is truly genuine comforted is the one who has truly genuinely mourned over their spiritual bankruptcy. What do you think about Isaiah was the prominent, the premier prophet of his day. What did Isaiah say when he was in the presence of the holiness of God? There in Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, for I am undone. For every awakening, there is the heavy, deep conviction of sin. It's not a silly time. It's a time to do business with God with no compromise of his word. And there is no Novocaine administered. There's no anesthesia. There is no painkiller that is given to the heart that has been stabbed by the word of God. Think about this. What happened at the Great Awakening under Jonah's preaching? A profound and painful awareness that they have offended a holy God. Repentance took place from uh, Nineveh's king all the way to Nineveh's people. And then here we see the book, the book's source of power. And we'll close with this, the book's source of power. In the upper room on the eve of crucifixion, the Lord Jesus comforted his disciples by promising them that after his ascension... He would send the Holy Spirit to minister in and through them. And as he told his grieving followers there in John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, or the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. The disciples must have wondered, how could anything be better than having the incarnate Son of God physically present in our midst? Yet Jesus insisted that it would be to their advantage for him to ascend to heaven and for the Holy Spirit to come. The Lord continued by exploring the vital work of the Holy Spirit, the work that the Holy Spirit would do, empowering the gospel proclamation of the apostles as they went out to preach the truth of salvation to a hostile world. The Spirit would go before them, propelling their preaching into the hearts of those who heard and who would believe the message. And the Lord explained it this way in verses 6 through 8 in John 16, or 8 through 11. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Our Lord's words indicate that the Holy Spirit's ministry of conviction encompasses three areas. First, it convicts the unredeemed of their sin, exposing them to the reality of their wretched condition before a holy God. In particular, he convicts sinners of their unbelief in the gospel, since, as Jesus explained, they do not believe in me. It is the natural response of men and women to reject the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Spirit confronts the world's hard-hearted unbelief. Second, the Holy Spirit convicts unbelievers of righteousness, confronting them with the truth of God's holy standard and Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness. By ripping back the facade of self-righteousness in their own lives, the Spirit exposes the true condition of those who have fallen short of God's perfect requirements. Then He turns their eyes to consider the unfailing righteousness of Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God. And then third, the Holy Spirit convicts sinners that the consequences of divine judgment are just and are very necessary. Namely, that sinners will one day be judged as the ruler of this world is judged. Just as Satan is doomed to eternal ruin, so also all those who are part of Satan's domain are under God's judgment. And their judgment is not only morally justified, but it is the only recourse of a righteous deity. 
As the author of Hebrews explained in chapter 10, verse 29, those who trample the Son of God underfoot by disregarding the gracious offer of the gospel insulted the Spirit of grace and store up for themselves severe punishment. In verse 31, thus it is a fearful thing, a terrifying thing, to fall into the hands of the living God. Warning unbelievers of the reality of future judgment is both a fearful and a very gracious work of the Holy Spirit, alerting them to the divine consequences that await all who do not repent and believe the gospel. You think about this, church, and I know I'm trying to get through this as quick as I can, but i got to say this. If you were in those Twin Towers on September 10, 2001, and you knew what was going to happen the very next day with those planes. You, they signified you to come and talk to all the employees that day. They all had to come and hear you. You knew what was going to happen the next day. How many of you would say this would be your message? God has a wonderful plan for your life. I don't think so. How about this? I'm going to give you my testimony. But a testimony without the gospel is not a testimony. How about this? Listen, I plea, I plea for you. Turn and get out of this building and do not return to what you're here today in. Turn and get away. Do never come back here. I'm giving you, I know without a doubt in my mind, if you come back to this same place, this same way of living here in this building tomorrow, death is imminent and I'm pleading for you not to come. Some might heed the message and some may say he's crazy. I'm going in. That's the way it is when you present the gospel, isn't it? As Jesus' words demonstrate, it was essential for the disciples to understand this ministry of the Holy Spirit. Why? As those commissioned to reach sinners like you and I, out to, with a message the world would violently reject and the world would hate. The apostles needed to know that the Holy Spirit would accompany their preaching with His power. That has not changed here today either, church. As they confronted sinners' unbelief, as they exalted Christ's righteousness, as they warned of God's judgment, the Holy Spirit would convict the hearts of those who heard, and He would convince and convert the elect. I know firsthand that preaching about human depravity, God's holiness, and eternal punishment is not popular. Just take it to the streets and you'll see just how unpopular it is. Especially in a postmodern society that celebrates tolerance. But it is the only ministry empowered by the Holy Spirit. He is the power behind the preaching of the gospel, using his word to draw sinners to the Savior and regenerate them. A.W. Pink, Arthur W. Pink, said, said it this way out of his book, The Holy Spirit. Quote, none will ever be drawn to Christ savingly by mere preaching. There must first be the supernatural operations of the Spirit to open the sinner's heart to receive the message, unquote. And as we bring the book proclaiming the truth of Scripture, the Spirit of God uses it to pierce hearts among the unredeemed, convicting and convincing them of the truth and converting them from the children of wrath into the children of God, just as he did you and I. If God is to send us a great awakening among many different features, there must be a cry for God's word. There must be confrontation with God's word. And there must be conviction from God's word. And may God bring such a revival to us. Let's pray. Father, give us ears to hear what your word says.
May we cry with passionate desire to bring the book. Our hands are lifted up to receive it from you. It is as though our faces are in the dirt, lowering ourselves in your presence. Father, woe is me, for I am a sinful man. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.